warmly. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Yes, my wife is here today, so uh, it brings me great joy to have her with me. I, uh, I was joking with somebody about the Smokey Robinson song, uh, it was just my imagination. Well, no, it's not my imagination, she just couldn't make it here. So she's here today, and uh, I'm very glad of it. And uh, I want to send greetings to those who are uh, watching live stream. I assume Glenn and Betty Jane and to others. We look forward to you being able to come back in person here at Christ Reformed with the wonderful body here. And so uh, don't be discouraged. The spirit is still at work wherever you are uh, through the means of grace, although it's, it's, it's a greater joy to be together when we're able to. So with that, let me pray for our time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege above privileges in this life to to sit under your word. And so, Father, as we saw the weather today, the visibility was not very great. It was not very far. And so we ask that uh, in our own hearts, whatever visibility or understanding of your word that might be clouded would be uh, enlightened by your word and by your spirit now, that we might see your son clearly and embrace him in greater measure and be conformed to his image. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have to say, uh, two weeks ago, I mentioned a certain passage of Scripture uh, regarding uh, Jesus saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I quoted John 5, and that was incorrect. And uh, praise the Lord, we have a, a standard above all of us that's always there, the Word of God. It was actually supposed to be John 15. But some of you might have caught that and said, I, that wasn't right, I don't think. And, and you're exactly right, because, you know, preachers make mistakes. But, um, but apart from him, we can do nothing, and John 15, 5, tells us that. So uh, praise be to God that we have his word, his infallible word, to correct even preachers uh, when they make mistakes. So with that, um, you see that our sermon title today is Made Like His Brothers. Made Like His Brothers. And at the end of the sermon, hopefully we'll have a greater sense of how Christ had to be made like his brothers, uh, and it was not easy for him to do that. And um, we should take great encouragement and comfort as we consider how he, he went about this great work that he did. And so I'd, I'd like for us to look at two passages this morning. We'll, you'll have to keep your finger in one and then the other as well. I'm sorry, but um, it's gonna, we're going to start off in Matthew 27. And uh, I'll start reading from verse 32, and then we'll look at Luke 23 as well. And the reason I wanted us to look at both passages is that in light of these two uh, pieces of Scripture together, we get an, uh, an amazing story of one of the thieves on the cross that you may not get in just one or the other. So that's, that's the hope today that we'll see how Christ had to be made like his brothers through this amazing work of conversion of one of the thieves on the cross as we consider God's word this morning. So with that, let's turn to Matthew 20, uh, 27, and I'll read verses, I'll start with verse 32, although the text says 38, I'll read with 32 and go on. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, that is Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Gogotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when, he had, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. 
Then two robbers, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from, from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And then let's turn over to Luke's gospel. <clears throat> Luke's gospel, chapter 23. And there we'll read from verse 32 to 43. Again, this is reflecting on the same uh, the crucifixion of Christ and those who were crucified with him. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Uh, this morning when the elders gathered together to pray, well, one of the elders said that they're reading Genesis, I think for the fourth time through, or it's a, it's a, it's a review of reading through the scriptures. And uh, that's always encouraging to me. I mean, that's one of the gifts that we have as the people of God over the course of our life, as long as the Lord gives us, is to keep reading through the scriptures. And one of the benefits is that things that we had read before and never really struck us, all of a sudden kind of come to light. The significance comes to light. And there's these wonderful, wonderful um, uh, truths that just kind of spring off the page. And the, uh, the impetus for this sermon was in that light. I had read certain passages, and I think I was laying in bed one night, and all of a sudden I started to realize, this is a major, <laughs> major event here. This is, this is a glorious major event. And, um, and so that's why I wanted to bring these two passages together to consider the, the one robber who all of a sudden had a change of life. Uh, it's an amazing conversion. I'd say in some ways it's even more amazing than Paul's conversion. And I'll explain why in a little bit. But uh, I'll be looking at this sermon under four points, but I just want to make an observation. If you, if you read these passages, you see how people responded to Jesus. 
uh, people who passed by, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, the robbers, they were all deriding and mocking Jesus. It seemed like it was a flood of opponents to Christ who, uh, in their assessment, their evaluation led them to mock and revile Jesus. And I think it's helpful for us to take, take note of that because often in the world, Christ is reviled and mocked and his people are reviled and mocked. And although there was this flood of, of criticism uh, against Christ, one man would be saved in that story we know very clearly. This one robber on the that was being crucified next to him. But this type of scenario is not unusual in Scripture. Yesterday I was reading in 2 Chronicles 18, and um, Ahab asked Jehoshaphat to join him in fighting uh, against Ramoth Gilead. And uh, Jehoshaphat had the presence of mind to say, well, let's, let's check with the Lord. Let's see what he says. Let's, let's get a prophet to tell us what he says. And Ahab, who was uh, an enemy of the Lord at that time, uh, had 400 prophets. 400 prophets that were saying, go for it, go for it, go for it. You know, and here's these, here's these two kings, 400 prophets. We can't, it'd be tough to fill 400 people in this room. And they're all saying the same thing, go for it, God is with you. You know, this great presumption that, of course, let's go do it. And Jehoshaphat says, is there somebody else maybe that we could check with? To get, get, you know, and, and I don't know what made him think that. And, and he says, well, there's this one man. There's this one man, Ahab says. But he never says anything good about me. <laughs> it's like, well, is it true? That's the question. You want a doctor who says, you're good, you're good, when your body is, you know, uh, racked with cancer. It would be absurd. And, and the absurdity of Ahab's thinking it's just madness. It just shows the madness of sin as you read through the passage. So they, they call Micaiah, and I won't go into all the details, but Micaiah was the lone voice. It was 400 to 1 in the end. And in the madness of sin, even for Jehoshaphat in some measure, they decided to go forward. And they had the warning. They had this great warning from Micaiah, and, and uh, Ahab says, look, I want you to get Micaiah and put him in prison and give him you know, hardly anything to eat until I come back in peace. And Micaiah, these were his last, his last words in this passage. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. And so here in this 400 to 1 uh, variance of, of words, Micaiah is speaking the truth. And in the end... What, what happened with Micaiah actually happened. Uh, this random, <laughs> random archer, it, it, you know, it's like he, he didn't even really try. He just kind of shoots this arrow in the air. It pierces an opening in the armor of Ahab, and we see that Ahab dies at sunset at the end of the chapter. Now, all that to say that we never look for numbers in determining truth. It's the word of God that determines truth. And so whatever you might be facing at work or in your family sometimes, it's the truth that will stand firm in the end. And you are never a loser when you stand with Christ and his word, no matter what the odds are. Now, this is just one story in the Old Testament. We, we see this over and over again, where it seems like against all odds, one true voice prevails in the end. But you have to wade through all the nonsense and all the, all the opposition 
And so this is a, a constant theme throughout Scripture, and we see it here even at the cross, where here is the Son of God, as we've already heard, the one through whom the whole world was made and made for him in human flesh on the cross, and people are just railing at him and mocking him as though he was a fool. And so as you're in Christ and you're in union with Christ, you will bear that too to some degree. And yet it is a badge of honor because in the end you will be vindicated and Christ will claim you as his own and all of his enemies will be defeated. So as we consider this passage itself, this, these two passages itself this morning, I want, I want to look at this as an amazing transformation of disposition, amazing transformation of disposition, the, the disposition of the robber who comes to Christ on the cross, amazing thing. And I like to look, under, look at this under four points. What is disposition? What is disposition? Secondly, the robber's predisposition. The robber's predisposition. Third, the robber's post-disposition. His post-disposition. And finally, uh, an explanation for his transformation. An explanation for his transformation. So first, what is disposition? Uh, I've been a Christian. This is my 50th year as a Christian. And... Um, I find that even at this point, it's good for me to go and make sure I understand what the meaning of these words are that I'm looking at in the scripture. And uh, this, uh, or, or, or either in scripture or just definitions of words I find in commentaries. I'm always in dictionary.com looking for the definition of something just to understand uh, what you know, people are saying. And so from dictionary.com, we have this for disposition, the predominant or prevailing tendency of one's spirits natural mental and emotional outlook or mood, characteristic attitude. So really a disposition is somebody's character, somebody's character. And so as we look at the character of both robbers at the beginning of this story, we see they have a similar disposition. And, um, and, he, and they have a certain disposition uh, in regards to Jesus himself. And so that will lead us into the robber's predisposition, the robber's predisposition, which we find in Matthew 27, uh, 38 and 44. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the left, and one, uh, one on the right, and one on the left. And then down to verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. They, they had this disposition towards Jesus, as seeing Jesus as a type of loser, as a type of fool. As he was on the cross, he had made these claims that he was the son of God. Even, you know, he had this title over him, said he was a king of Israel. And all of this looks so contrary to a worldly king. And so they mocked him and made fun of him. And, 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 and even, uh, you know, if you're the king, demonstrate what you can do. Show what you can do. And it's amazing to think of what Christ endured as one who was doing the work of his father and obeying his father. He was considered a fool or an idiot and was, was treated that way. But he was not just treated like that with just the, the crowds themselves, but even this one robber, they were both doing the same thing, the two robbers, one on the right and one on the left. They were basically saying, you're an idiot, you're a fool had such derision. And it's so important, again, to remember, this is, this is par for the course for those who are 
outside of Christ for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and not been born again. But what's so important about this is that this is his disposition towards Christ. This is his disposition towards the Savior of the world. And the Apostle Paul gives us an idea of what it's like for those who are outside of Christ and their relationship to Christ in in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, as he speaks of those who had already been transformed into Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We know that these two men were robbers, and they were getting a sense they're just due for their deeds. And they they were under the wrath of God. Both of these men were under the wrath of God as they were crucified to the right and to the left of Jesus. And so the All the things they knew about Christ were offensive to them. They had no love for them. They had no embrace of them. And and this is the natural character of those outside of Christ. Even those people that we think are nice. This is is where it gets tough. You have this veneer of niceness, which is not one of my favorite words. Kind is a great word, but... They have this nice veneer and that you can get along with them generally. They're not you know, yelling at you or super opposed. But in their heart, if they are outside of Christ, there's enmity towards God and there's enmity towards Christ. And if we don't understand that, we're going to be very confused as we walk through the Christian life. This is the scripture's diagnosis of man outside of Christ. No matter what the, the veneer looks like. There can be those who will curse you to your face and curse Christ to your face. And there can be those who seem nice. And yet if they're outside of Christ, they have the same internal disposition in opposition to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's not until the work of regeneration where somebody sees the truth and sees Christ for who he is that they really can embrace him and surely do. But apart from that gracious work of God's spirit, Christ is anathema in the end to them. Not rightfully so because Christ is the savior of the world, but that is the natural state of the man outside of Christ. And so they reviled. It made total sense that they would revile because they had no real love for Christ. And, uh, and so this one robber particularly, both of them were nailed to their crosses as enemies of Christ. And so this man was nailed to the cross as an enemy of Christ, but not indefinitely, because something would change in his heart as he was on the cross himself. And so that's where we want to move into the next part, which is the robber's... Uh, post-disposition, his post-disposition. And we see this in Luke 23, verses 39 to 44. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. The man is still in the same disposition towards the Lord. But verse 40, things are getting interesting. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a change of disposition. This is what struck me as I had been thinking about what happens here with this man. I don't do well with pain. <laughs> you know, I have friends who have migraines, have had migraines over the years. In my whole life, I've had two or three possible migraines, and I was undone. Where I wanted to go in a dark room, I didn't want to be with anybody. And to think that this man was nailed to the cross as Jesus was nailed to his cross, with all the pain that is associated with it, with all the effort that's trying to not suffocate during the crucifixion. And I won't go into all the details of the agony of a cross, but that this man was in great agony and pain, beginning his crucifixion as an enemy of God, but somewhere along the line, there was this magnificent change, a magnificent change in his disposition, where he... He came to acknowledge his sin, where he came to see that Jesus had no sin. So he rebukes the other man. Here, he's, all of a sudden, he, break, he breaks ranks with the other robber. The other robber's still railing, but now this man is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, he rebukes him, he says, what are you thinking? We deserve what's happening to us, but not him, but not him. So he rebukes the other man. This robber who, who has this change in disposition, he, he rightfully acknowledges his penalty. He, he rightly acknowledges that Jesus, too, is under condemnation, but unjustly somehow. But unjustly somehow. And what does he do? <laughs> he calls on the name of the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord who is to his side. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a simple sentence. But he calls on the name of the Lord, a call of, 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 of a desiring salvation. It's an amazing thing. He's, he's right next to Christ. He's, here, here's the one robber being crucified, and right next to him, Jesus is being crucified. And as the light of what's going on comes to him, he cries out to the Lord. It's a very simple thing. You know, calling out to the Lord can look like many different things. It's just really the heart crying out to him. Whatever it is, whatever is troubling you, whatever is bothering you. And this is what Christ has purchased with his own blood, access to the throne of grace. But that's what this man is doing. He's, he's calling out to, on the name of the Lord. And in verse 43, Jesus assures him a place in, in heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus would be in paradise that, that day as the great warrior who had overcome sin and death. But this man would be with him too, because he too was a child of Abraham. And so in this, this span of however long this man was being crucified, he went from an enemy of God to a child of God who would that very day enter glory. It's an amazing story, and that should give us great encouragement. Great encouragement for ourselves. So we are, we're always growing in our understanding of, of, of the worth of Christ as his people. Even as his people. You know, we have a remaining corruption. Even as children of God, there's a remaining darkness that needs to be enlightened by the Spirit through the word of God. 
that shows us what a great Savior we have, how comprehensive he is, how much he loves us, that he, he would lay down his life for us. And so this story is, is worth some time to consider it later in the day as you're able. Um, this amazing transformation. As I said, when I'm in pain, I don't think real well. But even through this man's pain and his darkness, the light of the, of the gospel came through by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he went from being an enemy of God to a, a very child of God through faith in Christ. So we see his predisposition, his post-disposition, and now we need to consider an explanation for this transformation. How in the world, being nailed to a cross for his crimes in great agony, did he go from being an enemy of God to a child of God? And I can't explain this all together. I've, I've tried to think through what was going on. And, um, uh, but in the, in the Luke passage, we do have the words of Christ in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in the midst of this man's agony, he, he, he kind of came to grips that he realized, I deserve this. I deserve this cross. I deserve it because of my deeds. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. This man was confessing that he was a sinner. He was confessing that he was guilty. He was confessing this in the presence of Christ, his Savior. And I think that might have been the, the beginning part as he, as he heard other words of Jesus being said on the cross. We can't say absolutely how much he heard and how much he didn't. But that the, the truth of the gospel and the prayer of Christ started to come home. You know, two weeks ago, we looked at the powerful voice of Jesus, the powerful voice of Jesus in John 5, verses 25 to 26. Jesus had healed the, the, uh, the, the lame man, and then it goes on in the text, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son also to have life in himself. That on the cross, this robber heard the voice of the Son of God, but in a unique way that the other robber did not. That he heard the voice of Jesus in an effectual way, in such a way that he would pass from death to life, even while he is being crucified. He heard the voice of Jesus in this way as our Shorter, our shorter catechism des describes this work of effectual calling as we considered two weeks ago as well. Question 31, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery. We see from the man's own words, we deserve this. I deserve this. And he was in... In a sense, he knew a just misery of hanging on the cross because of his sins. Whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for their sins, for they know not what they do. And yet that day, the Spirit was pleased to work in such a way to convince him of the reality and truth of the benefits there in Christ, in such a way 
that he would acknowledge his sins and call out to Christ and find new life in him. Question 32. What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification. And the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. He had been justified on the cross. He'd become a child of God on the cross. He had experienced definitive sanctification such that he could say, I deserve what I'm receiving. But this man does not deserve what he's receiving, this Lord Jesus. And he calls on the Lord and finds salvation. And, and so this, this robber on the cross, in a very personal and painful way, experienced the gospel. Not many of us get to the place where we, we, we have a, a very uh, lively and painful example or, or acknowledgement of our sin. But this man who was a robber and who was nailed to the cross, experiencing the pain of the crucifixion, had almost one of the clearest pictures ever of understanding what Christ was doing. As he is there, as this robber is being crucified, and justly so, he knew, at the same time he knew this man is being, this man is under condemnation, but he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. And so in that sense, his, his, his conversion to me is almost more amazing than, than Paul's. I, I, I want to be very careful because Paul's conversion is there for a reason. But to think about, in the midst of his pain, he was converted to Christ. You know, if we had odds, we wouldn't, we wouldn't put any odds on this man. He had a personal, experiential picture of what was occurring on the cross. Jesus was just like him, enduring crucifixion. An amazing identification of Jesus with the robber. And this is what has struck me as I think about this, is this man has come to grips with, I am a sinner, I deserve what I am getting, and he looks and he sees Jesus having the same experience, and yet knowing this man doesn't deserve this. And so the question we have to say, ask is, what light does Scripture shed upon the action of Jesus here on the cross? What, what, light, what light do we have from Scripture? Hear the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This man did not see Jesus' resurrection. But he saw him dying. He was right there. He was on site. He was in close proximity. And he already began not to live for himself. He testified to the truth of who Christ was. An innocent man under condemnation. The apostle goes on. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. They had a worldly view of, of Christ at one point. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What a great example in the man who, the robber who was converted on the cross. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That that is the light that we need to know, that at the cross he was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Not even the sins of this robber who had reviled Christ earlier in the day. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The robber knew that. The robber knew that. He knew that Christ was under a sentence of condemnation, but he knew he had no sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this robber who was converted on the cross became a truth teller, a lover of the light. We've been talking about light throughout the day. He was a lover of the light. Paul goes on, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now, Behold, now is the day of salvation. And really, this is the work of the, the church. This is, this is the message that we have above all messages. You know, one of the sad things about this time of year for me is that there's so much garbage <laughs> and trash that's mixed up with the truth of the coming of Christ in his first advent. You know, you go into a store or a restaurant and you're going to hear, you're going to hear wonderful hymns that we have in our Trinity hymnal and you're going to hear all kind of garbage at the same time. And it just... It's sad because it dishonors the glory of Christ's first advent. And yet just remember, just like I said earlier, it doesn't matter what the odds are, the truth is the truth. And if you're in Christ, all those glorious things of Christ's first appearance are yours. But that's not the only light we have on these things. We also have the light of the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That Christ will appear with us as, as, as the people of God and present us to the Father. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, like, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's these last two verses here in Hebrews that are just amazing, just striking. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Well, his brothers were sinners. His brothers were fallen in Adam. His brothers were enemies of the cross. And so he had to be made just like his brothers, 
Just like the, the robber who was on the cross, just like Jesus. He had, Jesus had to be just like the robber. He had to be just like his brother. And so that's why the, the incarnation is so incredible and glorious and magnificent. He didn't do a little bit of suffering for a, for a big payroll at the end. He had to be just like his brothers. He who knew no sin had to bear our sins. And in this picture of the robber and Christ, it's like, it's, it's this, this incredible identification, a one-to-one correlation. He had to be made a man. So he comes into the world. He has to have a body. The sacrifices of the Old Testament wouldn't do. A man died. A man fell. A man must die and pay the penalty. And so the second person of the Trinity takes on human flesh that he might be our sin bearer. You know, the Advent season is a mix of joy and sorrows. And uh, even in our personal life, as Tom already prayed, but the, the, the Advent of Christ is glorious, but it's not easy, and it's not light, and it's not frivolous. Because for us to be saved, for us to be drawn back to God in a safe relationship, he had to bear our sins. And in this picture of the robber and of the Lord Jesus Christ, both under crucifixion, both under condemnation, is this glorious identification of Jesus with the sinner. Jesus can do, could have done no more for his people than what he did. And that's why I think this, this scene that we have at the cross with the, the robber and Jesus next to him, I wondered if, you know, as the Spirit worked, just like, he's doing what I'm, I'm receiving. He doesn't deserve it. Maybe he didn't understand substitutional uh, atonement, but, but he had it right there in this vivid picture of Jesus being crucified right next to him. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the other side of the coin, that Jesus always wanted to obey the Father. It was his chief delight and will to do so, even though it was going to be difficult even though for a while, as the God-man, he would not have the fellowship that he'd always, always experienced in glory, that he always experienced in this world up until the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a blackout time that he had never experienced in his whole existence, as he is now the God-man. But he experienced that that we would, might never experience it. That is, his people, no matter what the trials of this world, no matter what the difficulties of the, this world, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And not only that, that the grace that is in Christ will enable us to endure great hardship. As Jesus was about to leave the world, uh, go to the cross, he had to talk to the disciples, say, if they hated me, they'll hate you. They didn't do too well initially. But as time went on, they all lived for Christ. James, the brother of John, was the first of the apostles to lose his life on behalf of Christ. And you kind of wonder, how did they do that? Where did they find that strength? It was all in Christ. It was all in Christ. And so this is why we need to meditate on the, on the cross and the agony of the cross, because we're not just thinking about pain and agony. We're thinking about one who has overcome death, one who has overcome the penalty that we deserved, that we might never, never experience those things ourselves. And so as we, we think about this idea, he had to be made like his brothers or sisters or children, as, as, as the place might be. He had to be made like our sin. 
He couldn't just say, come on in, it's fine. Come, up, come to this great holiness of, of, of mine and the Father and the Holy Spirit. He couldn't do it because there was a penalty in the way. And he has borne it on the cross. He has borne it on the cross. I want to close with this, this one verse in Hebrews. It's, it's very striking. Hebrews 10.5. <clears throat> Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you, you prepared for me. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were these wonderful pictures pointing to Christ. They never would take away the sins of mankind. They would never open the door to the throne of grace. They would never make us holy. But they all pointed to Christ. And so Christ, the second person in the Trinity, in the perfect fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it was agreed upon that a body would be prepared for him. He would take on human flesh. He would enter the womb of Mary. He would come in his first advent. And so, as you go through this season, and things may be busy and difficult, Remember, your Savior is with you. Your Savior has borne your sin. Your Savior will see you through to the end. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, it is not unusual whenever your glory is seen in the world that men do not just say, Amen, Amen, praise the Lord, but they... They are very quiet in awe and wonder. And Father, as we see that the coming of your Son, this glorious coming, that he would save his people from their sins, was not very easy for our Lord. But he loved you and would not disobey you. It was his delight to do your will. It was his delight to save a people for himself. himself. It was a delight to bear their sins in that sense that he would do it, no matter what the cost. So, Father, we ask that as we consider these things, we might be, have all in wonder in our hearts. At what wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. And to be strengthened as we face difficulties in this world, knowing that Christ has already gone before us. And he has overcome every single enemy. And so that we should not be surprised that even we, in our weak, our weak faith, might not overcome things we thought we'd never overcome. And in the end, by your grace, to be made like your son Jesus Christ for all eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name.